For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Um, what I had planned to talk about uh, tonight was uh, Chapter 5 of the Malakuti Sutra, Consolation of the Invalid. I will. I understand Taigen talked about this chapter in some yesterday, um, so I hope I won't go over too much the same ground. I understand there was a lot of uh, discussion, and that's great. I would appreciate that. And if you have a question or something you want to add during the talk, feel free to raise your hand. I, I think best in response to questions and other people's comments anyway. Um, chapter five is short, but um, there's a lot there. So really a line by line, paragraph by paragraph exposition would take a long time. So I like to just touch on some of the main things that I, I think are interesting and also to provide some background from within the sutra. Is there who here is or online is not in the practice commitment period or hasn't read chapter five? Okay, good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Then for your benefit. Thank you. <laughs> um, the sutra takes place um, in a town called Vaishali in northern India and revolves around one of its residents, a layman named Vimalakirti, who is a tremendously accomplished bodhisattva. Um, he has uh, progressed tremendously, second to, only to the Buddha in his realization of wisdom and his skill in uh, what Robert Thurman calls liberative techniques. Um, and at the same time, he has a very successful lay life. He's a wealthy businessman. He has a family and children. His wife has lots of attendance, but he has remained uh, chaste. In spite of that, he visits the casinos and the bars and um, the houses of prostitution, but remains pure. He speaks to the young and the old. He serves in the government. And all of that while um, becoming this incredibly accomplished bodhisattva. Um, in chapter two of this of the sutra, the one that uh, really is the first time that Vimalakirti appears, it mentions that, that he is sick and that he has become sick in order to encourage people to come talk to him so he can teach them the Dharma. And that works immediately um, all of the bigwigs in the town come to talk to him, and, and uh, he preaches to them from his sickbed, and they 
have great realizations. But uh, that's not enough for him. He's aware that the Buddha it, and all of the Buddha's followers, the, the great Shravakas, the, the Arhats, who have greatly realized most of them and have, uh, are fully enlightened. Many of them have reached no returner st status or they only have a limited number of rebirths before they will pass into Nirvana. And so the great ones like Shariputra, Ananda, Madhavyana, Mahatma um, are there, and quite a few others. And then some of the great uh, bodhisattvas are there too, along with thousands of magical creatures and divinities who follow the Buddha wherever he goes. And so uh, Vimalakirti uh, is aware that they're there, and he is disappointed that nobody from that crowd has come to visit him, and the Buddha hasn't sent anyone. And so he thinks, well, you know, I'm here on my sick bed, I'm sick, the Buddha hasn't sent anyone. When they ask about me, see how I'm doing, and the Buddha, who's clairvoyant, uh, heard that thought. And so in chapter three, which isn't in our reading, uh, the Buddha starts talking to each of the major um, is it called? It's the followers or disciples? What does he call them? Uh, anyway, the, the various Shravakas, Arhats, and so on to say, um, would you please go check out Vimalakirti and see how he's doing? And he goes to one and then the next and the next and the next because each one of them says, well, I'd really rather not. And it turns out that that's because each one of them tells a story about the last time he met with Vimalakirti, usually while they're sitting in meditation under a tree, in the case of Shariputra, or all of the rest of them, they're, they're preaching to the townspeople in Vaishali, and Vimalakirti comes and, and starts coaching them. He says, well, you haven't quite got this right. And he talks to them usually about how they're practices Arhats uh, shows an inadequate understanding of emptiness or skillful means. So eventually the Buddha gives up and that takes us to chapter four where the Buddha starts going to the different uh, bodhisattvas and um, they do the same thing. But there's a, some interesting things the first bodhisattva he asks is, is Maitreya, who's living in the Tushita heaven, where he will stay until his next rebirth, when he will become the next Buddha in this world system. And he's having a discussion with various divinities who are in the Tushita heaven about whether a bodhisattva can, can has reached a certain stage, can actually regress and, and go back to the lower stage of Bodhisattva. And Vimalakirti shows up in the Tusita heaven and, and uh, wants to talk to, uh, to Maitreya about his understanding of emptiness and just to say, well, why does all this talk about your next green birth? Is that something that's already happened? Is that happened now? Is it going to happen in the future? Because you know, clearly you, you must not understand emptiness very well because in, in emptiness, there would be no 
no rising or falling, no birth and no death. So what's going on here? So he says, uh, so therefore, Maitreya, is your reality, let's see, okay, let's go, does your prophecy concern birthlessness? Birthlessness applies to the stage of destiny for the ultimate, in which there is neither prophecy nor attainment of perfect enlightenment. So, Maitreya, is your reality from birth? Is it from cessation? Your life as prophesied is not born and does not cease, nor will it be born, nor will it cease. Furthermore, your life is just the same as the lives of all living beings, the reality of all things and the reality of all the holy ones. If your enlightenment can be prophesied in such a way, so can that of all living beings. Why? Because reality does not consist of duality or diversity, Maitreya. Whenever you attain Buddhahood, which is the perfection of enlightenment, at the same time, all living beings will also attain Buddhahood. Why? Because enlightenment consists of the realization of all living beings. Maitreya, at the moment when you attain ultimate liberation, all living beings will also attain ultimate liberation. Why? The Tathagatas do not enter ultimate liberation until all living beings have entered ultimate liberation. For since all living beings are utterly liberated, the Tathagata sees them as having the nature of ultimate liberation. So, you know, in... Uh, so he's explained that, that from the point of, of view of emptiness, um, any talk of birth and death, attainment uh, of Buddhahood, um, and so on, is just a dualistic imposition upon reality of, of this false category, false categories, these um, false concepts that don't really apply because everything in, in the world is... Um, is inseparable and is mutually dependent and constantly changing and composite. And so um, all living beings are in effect form one reality, one body, one life, something like that. So we can't really talk about his own life and death, birth and death, because only birth and death, it wouldn't matter from that state aspect of reality, from the aspect of emptiness, would be the entire world's birth and death. So um, I'll just say that after, after he's had that exchange, um, with Matra, he says, Lord, when Yamalakirti had discoursed thus, 200 of the deities in the assembly attained the tolerance of birthlessness. As for me, Lord, I was rendered speechless, so I'm reluctant to go to that good man to inquire about his illness. So that sort of thing happens with other people. There's a very good story about how Mara, um, you know, the evil enchanter who had tempted the Buddha when he was sitting, you know, on seeing his, his final enlightenment you know, and tempted him with, uh, with his daughters, the, uh, uh, um, Mara pretended to be Indra and brought 15,000 maidens to tempt a bodhisattva who said, well, you know, that's not really appropriate for me. 
to do to accept this this gift of these fifteen thousand maidens that you're that you're promoting on the on the mug after all. And um, why don't you give them to Vimalakirti? And the voice from the heaven says, "Yes, you should give them to Vimalakirti." So Vimalakirti uh, talks to him and, and says, uh, "Evil Mara, since these heavenly maidens are not suitable for this religious devotee, a son of the Shakya, give them." To me, Mara is terrified because he thinks that the uh, Vimalakirti is going to uh, uncloak him in, in, so that everyone will realize this isn't Indra after all. This, is, this really is Mara and, and that he's not going to be able to get away. So to get, get away, he says, okay, you can have the 15,000 maidens. And uh, Shakyamuni I mean, Vimalakirti says, great, and he preaches to the maidens and brings them to a high level of awakening. And they're all saying, well, this is wonderful. We want to live the joy of the Dharma. We don't want to live the joy of this sensual life that we've had before as your maidens. And so we're very happy to renounce the entire world. And uh, and we're going to uh, and Vimalakirti says that's great, you know that that they're going to be great bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas just find joy in the delights of the Dharma. And Mara said to the goddesses, and, and Mara says, um, well, you know, Vimalakirti, you're a bodhisattva. You've taken an oath, a vow of generosity, so you can't refuse me anything that I want, right? And Vimalakirti says, yeah. And he says, well, then give me back my maidens. And Vimalakirti says, okay, fine, you can have them. And the maidens are a little dismayed because they've taken this great joy in the Dharma and they're wondering what's going to happen. He says, and Vimalakirti says, don't worry about it. We're going to go back with Mara, but you're going to live your life in accordance with uh, a door of the Dharma, a scripture called the Inexhaustible Lamp, which says that just as a lamp can transfer its flame to an infinite number of, of other lamps and candles, so each person who has awakened, each Bodhisattva, can transfer the light of the Dharma to an infinite number of people. So what Shakyamuni has done is send the 15,000 maidens back to Mara's world where they're going to convert all of the maidens and other people who are under his control. So this is this is uh, Vimalakirti's example of skillful means in, in converting people. Anyway, so after uh, all of the great bodhisattvas have said they're really not interested in going to see the Malakirti on your sickbed, that's when we get to chapter five. That's what's going on. It explains sort of the introduction when the Buddha says, talks to Manjushri, right, to the uh, Great wisdom, the the, uh, the embodiment of Prajna. It says, "Well, uh, Manjushri, would you please uh, go see Lord uh, Vimalakirti to inquire about his illness?" And Manjushri says, "Well, I'd rather not. Um, dealing with Vimalakirti is it's always." 
a trouble, a bothersome debate. But yeah, fine, I'll go. And so when he says that, then all of the other um, arhats and bodhisattvas and the manageable creatures and so on say, well, okay, well, we're going to come to that. And it's really hard to tell if they're saying, well, this is going to be really cool to see a conversation between the embodiment of wisdom and in Vimalakirti, or if they're saying, well, okay, Manjushri is really going to show him now. Vimalakirti is embarrassed all the rest of us. Let's see what Manjushri can do for him. Maybe the ambiguity is intentional. Um, so anyway, 8,000 bodhisattvas, 500 arhats, a great number of chakras, brahmas, okapalas, and hundreds of thousands of gods and goddesses all follow Manjushri to listen to the Dharma. Dharma. And Vimalakirti somehow magically discerns that they're on their way. And so he, uh, to make room in his house, he gets rid of all the furnishings of his house and all of his servants magically just, okay, out. But uh, that's not, and then he says um, like that, uh, now may this house be transformed into emptiness. So the empty house is not the same as a house of emptiness, right? The house of emptiness is one that, which uh, it's not really an enclosed thing separate from the world. It is intimately connected to the world. There are no boundaries. And so in effect, the house that's been transformed into emptiness extends throughout the entire University, all the universes that exist and can hold everybody. All these thousands of people and creatures can fit into the house with no trouble at all. So that begins a, a conversation. Uh, Vimalakirti is, is sort of insisting on uh, continuing his emptiness theme, the same one he had been talking to the various arhats and bodhisattvas about. Manjushri, welcome, Manjushri. You are very welcome. There you are, without any coming. You appear without any seeing. You are heard without any hearing. So none of these things. No, there's no self-nature to Manjushri or to the hearing or the going or the coming. It's all just this. And Manjushri declares... Householder, it is as you say. Who comes, finally comes not. Who goes, finally goes not. Why? Who comes is not known to come. Who goes is not known to go. Who appears is finally not to be seen. But then he switches to a more normal conversation. So, well, Bodhisattva, how is your condition? How sick are you? Are you feeling bad? Can you bear this? Uh, how are you being treated? Is your treatment making you feel worse? Um, how long is it going to continue? How, how can it be alleviated? And this is the first, I think, great theme then of this chapter, where he says, Manjushri, uh, my sickness comes from ignorance and the thirst for existence, and it will last as long as do the sicknesses of all living beings. Were all living beings to be free from sickness, I also would not be sick. Why, Manjushri? For the Bodhisattvas, the world consists only of living beings. And sickness is inherent in living in the world. 
We're all living beings free of sickness. The Bodhisattva also would be free of sickness. For example, Manjushri, when the only child of a merchant is sick, both its parents become sick on account of the sickness of their child. And the parents will suffer as long as that only child does not recover from its sickness. Just so, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva loves all living beings as if each were his only child. He becomes sick when they are sick and is cured when they are cured. You ask me, Manjushri, whence comes my sickness? The sickness of the Bodhisattva arises from great compassion. And he repeats that a couple of times in the, um, with a twist later on. It's not that it's in, it's in the, the, uh, the speech that the Malakirti made in Maitreya, that it's just that, that all, I mean, it's the same concept, that all living things form a single life, a single body, and therefore the sickness of one is the sickness of all of them. And so the, the Bodhisattva uh, feels the need to uh, cure the sickness. But he also adds, adds em uh, uh, empathy to the whole equation, saying, recognizing in his own suffering, the infinite sufferings of these living beings, the Bodhisattva correctly contemplates these living beings and resolve secure all sicknesses. He should encourage his empathy for all living beings on account of his own sickness, his remembrance of suffering experienced from beginningless time, and his consciousness of working for the welfare of living beings. So it's not just his his um, his wisdom, his emptiness wisdom, his realization. It makes him look at the empathy, but he is also a normal person who feels sympathy for the suffering of other beings. And I think it's clear across this chapter that the sickness that he's talking about is not, it could be extent to physical sickness, but it's really talking about um, the sickness of attachment, aversion, and delusion giving rise to dukkha. So the suffering from the sickness is, this, is the suffering of dukkha. And um, and so that's what he's going to try to, uh, to heal. And he does that by preaching the Dharma and teaching living beings to how to release their attachment, aversion, delusion, and um, relieve dukkha. So it's pretty clear that, that that's what he's talking about here. And I think, you know, uh, the, the Malakirti isn't, magically sick himself as a result of the, the suffering of other living beings. But he has this identity. This is, this is the one life when he responds to the suffering of the greater life, the greater reality, the inseparable reality of all living things. So, um, you know, he... And in his discussion of what's involved in, in um, what he teaches, he, he resolves the sickness by preaching the Dharma to them. And what he teaches to them is um, that attachment, aversion, and delusion all involve uh, unreal mental constructions, conceptual impositions on the world that there are, there are discrete things, there are separate um, enduring uh, 
they exist on their own. And um, so his his message, which he repeats various times, is that there's a twofold approach to dealing with um, delusion on the one hand and detachment and aversion and aversion on the other. Attachment and aversion and the suffering that come from those, you respond to with um, equanimity and tolerance. So tolerance in the sense of shanti paramita, the, the, the ability to simply be with the suffering and not fight it, giving rise to additional uh, karma. <coughs> um, with respect to delusion, there's plenty, he discusses at length, the different kinds of emptiness that the Bodhisattva realizes is the emptiness of personhood, which is the same sort of thing that the, that the Arhats would have understood, that each thing is, is um, that there is no self inside that controls or possesses this body, that the, and that the body and the mind are, are composites, which are constantly changing and subject to dissolution and the impure and um, painful, and so on, that's fine. But then he says, oh, but once you've understood that there is no self in the defined standards that make up your individual being, you need to understand you, that, so you're just a thing. You're just a heap of things. You're a heap of skandhas. You're, you're a heap of, um, of your collection of dharmas. But even those are emptiness as well. And any reality that you think they have is just is you imposing that reality, your view of that reality on the world. And, and in discussing that, that's where he, he begins to use the term that for him, delusion is dualism, right? which sort of emphasizes the fact that the, the dualism means that he's projecting this framework, this structure of reality on the world. It's me and the world, me and you, good and bad, right and wrong, before and after, and so on. Um, imputing reality to these to these constructions that that um, don't really exist. I think he calls them verbal impositions, something like that. Um, and um, that's true when we when we think in those terms and become involved in thinking about those uh, dichotomies, we, we buy into the thinking. Um, it's, he's, not, he's not suggesting that there could never be any thinking, but he talks about really uh, thoughts as convictions. When thoughts become convictions, that's, that's, uh, that's really dualism in that uh, distribution. So um, I I don't know. That's the I'm not aware. I haven't read any other sutra that speaks of dualism and non-dualism as much as the Vimalakirti Sutra does. It's it's definitely a theme, even in in some of the earlier chapters. Um, so. Uh, having preached the Dharma and told everyone how to, what they need to understand and how to practice, he points out that um, 
the ultimate liberation is the perfection of wisdom and the perfection of skillful means. That integrating those two is the ultimate liberation. That um, wisdom without skill and liberative technique is bondage, because by definition it means that you don't understand emptiness well enough in the inseparable nature of the world and of your existence with other living beings enough that it would give rise to the desire to uh, to save other living beings uh, to become a bodhisattva and um, liberative technique trying to be good trying to help others creates good karma but if it's not integrated with wisdom it really is not Capable, if you do not um, integrate those, have not perfected both skillful means and wisdom, you can't liberate beings. So you have to have both. Um, I'm going to. Uh, I think those are the. And those are really the biggest themes in, in chapter five. And I think uh, it's interesting to see how he comes back over and over, uh, the Vimalakirti comes back over and over and over again to discuss those different themes, sometimes from a slightly different angle. Chapter five, after that quick, very short exchange between Manjushri and Vimalakirti, chapter five is just a sermon by Vimalakirti on these issues. On, um, The, uh, the origins of the Bodhisattva vow, uh, the nature of awakening, what it is you have to teach to living beings so that they awaken and become Bodhisattvas themselves, and the necessity, the, the fact that the ultimate liberation is not just the perfection of wisdom or the perfection of, of uh, skillful means, but, but their integration. That, that the perfection of skillful means and the exercise of skillful means is in effect the embodiment of wisdom. And without that embodiment, it's not perfect wisdom. Anyway, so um, were there any comments or questions from yesterday that you're hold, you were holding out on and we could talk about tonight? Uh, Douglas, Douglas, if I may, just to add, I appreciate everything you said, just to add a couple points, and uh, the, you sort of spoke about this, but he, he Malakirti also says that his sickness is because of the sickness of all beings. As long as, as long as sentient beings are sick, he will be sick. So that's part of it. And then there's a part that I really like, which... Again, it's uh, it's a way of expressing what you were talking about, but he talks about the basis from which sicknesses arise. This is on the top of page forty-six. Uh, what is the what is the basis? It is object perception. Insofar as apparent objects are perceived, that's the basis of sickness. When things are perceived as objects, then uh, all of existence is perceived as objects. And the thorough understanding of the basic, uh, well, then he says that 
uh, he talks about what is non-perception, the internal subject and the external object are not perceived dualistically, as you were saying. So uh, just so in some ways, he boils it down to sickness comes from seeing things, seeing the world, seeing other people, seeing events as objects, and that there's no subject and object. So I just wanted to to uh, put put those into the discussion. Thank you. Yeah, and when Madhushree asks him, well, where did this sickness come from? The first thing the, that Bhimalachiki says is it comes from ignorance and attachment. But it's not his ignorance and attachment. He has perfected wisdom. He has very close, uh, and he has either perfected or is very close to perfecting skillful means. So he's really talking about the ignorance and attachments of other living beings, which are suffering. It's the sickness that he perceives in the world as, in the world that he must respond to, and he believes to. So he's actually perceiving other beings. So he doesn't have that sickness other beings have. <laughs> I think he doesn't have, uh, he's not attached to the perception. Ah. I think he is able to see the two aspects. Uh-huh. So he's, but he's different. Other people can't. Other people see mm-hmm. conventional reality that they don't perceive into. There's still dualism. Well, there's the emptiness of emptiness. That's true. So it brings you back, emptiness eventually brings you back to this reality. Okay, now Chris Cadman told me there were a whole lot of questions yesterday and comments, so I'm not buying that there's nothing to So. I was thinking about this uh, Mara trafficking his daughters, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's interesting that, that you know this this is sort of like oh the Malakirti is a special iteration of teacher who frees uh, the prostitutes, but actually Buddha freed quite a few women in the early stories of Buddhist women. Often women would come to him who'd been trafficked or abused and become part of his sangha. And sometimes I think there's this kind of tension between like the Malakirti and sort of the old school Buddhism. But I actually feel they're they're not so different. Well, there's certainly a lot of overlap. I mean, when he when he visits the the arhats and the bodhisattvas, you know, the lot of the ground covered that he's explaining is, is classic early Buddhism, like the existence of the skandhas and the ayatanas and the uh, you know, abhidharma stuff. He's not saying you guys are wrong. He's saying this has got to go further. But, you know, he binds one part of it, but the other parts of it too, yeah. Um, I don't think I don't think that 
in the description of, of the follower, the crowd that's following the Buddha around, there's a reference to any nuns or upasakas or upasikas. Lay men and lay, lay women and follow, follow the Buddha. There's just nothing about that. Mm -hmm. Except so, for Vimalakirti, right? Because he was a lay person who was a follower of the Buddha. Right, but he doesn't follow him around. He's not part of no. the crowd. He stays in Vaishali. Um, so in this sutra that's extolling the, the possibility of, of um, great enlightenment and great uh, perfect enlightenment and, and um, skillful means in a lay person, no, there's he's it. In his story. In his story. Or whoever, you know, this is this one doesn't begin, does it? It does, this one does begin. Super classic, doesn't it? Yeah. That's if I heard it one time. So <laughs> but he was an so he didn't like women. So yes, he showed. Who was first? Is it um, possible to know when this sutra appeared? I mean, it purports to be contemporary with Buddha, but the, um, you know, uh, is it associated with any particular group or person who wrote it? And uh, um, what? Maybe between two and four hundred? Tigan has some answer. One hundred to one hundred, I think it said, and then Kumara Jiva got. Mm -hmm. Did his translation about 400, something oh. like that? We don't really know the history exactly, but probably um, between 100 to 200, maybe a little later. Um, we don't know who compiled it exactly. So all the sutras, though, are um, said to be the teachings of the Buddha. In this case, it opens, as Douglas was saying, with uh, Nanda saying us if I heard so, and then it goes into a whole discourse by Vimalakirti, um, but uh, supposedly these are um, uh, expressed by the Buddha with, with and his followers. But the, but historically, in terms of you know historical criticism, it was probably like I don't know between one hundred and two hundred or so that it was a little later that it was put into writing. Thank you. Nisha. I'd like to hear any thoughts you have on how this can help us. Um, I think it's a corrective. If you ever think I've... Uh, I, I think there are a number of things. I think that um, the when uh, Bhimala Kirti talks about uh, Cultivating uh, tolerance and equanimity um, as as the approach to dealing with attachment and aversion. Um, I think that rings true. Um, it's not a way I think of having heard it described before. Really, um, I think that. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of Buddhism is about uh, the conflict between the world as it is, 
So this slippery world of emptiness that has no specific form and it's composite and constantly changing and nothing independent and mutually interdependent and so on, and how we perceive it and think of it. And I think that, that the emphasis on dualism helps make that easier to catch, that we think in dichotomies so much of the time that I think it, um, I think that that emphasis can sort of raise a red flag for us. Um, and I think that, um, you know, like so much of the Bodhisattva literature, uh, it, it helps to um, just point out that we've barely started. Um, that even, even if with Dogen we could say that our practice of Zazen is practice realization of complete enlightenment, that has to unfold and so And um, I'm not all that skilled at the unfolding yet. I remember something from Nagarjuna, but it might be wrong, but something like, you must know the conventional truth, the conventional world, be intimate with that. If you do not know that, you cannot know emptiness. So maybe this is also like encouraging us to be in the world. Yeah. I, I, that's a good point. I don't think he really, he doesn't talk about two natures explicitly, I don't think, but in effect he does because he does say we have to act in the world where there are people and things that things to do. So, so it's clear that when he's talking about emptiness, it isn't that the world is dissolving into some gray fog or something where we just can't see anything. We can see things perfectly well. It's just that they aren't the way we think about them or the way we tend to perceive them or feel about them or desire them. All of that involves some sort of conceptual overload. It's us that's not inherent in the thing, the world. wonder how we handle like people that oppress other people. Like Mara's sort of that, right? Maybe? I think he's sort of, he was a trickster with Mara. Mm -hmm. He was setting up Mara to go trash his whole operation as soon as he <laughs> took these 15,000 now awakened women back to it wouldn't be a heavenly realm, whatever it is, wherever he lives, and they're going to convert everybody else who's there. He's sort of tricked in. Yeah. So it's a creative action. It is. It's, it is, you know, it is a uh, skill and liberative technique. <laughs> so, so it's up there. I'm sure that kind of laugh as much as all of the jokes at Shari Butcher's expense did. Yeah, I was just thinking about Asian's question of how does it help us, yeah. but also encourages us to be kind of creative when we're confronting difficulty, right? Like I, I just had this idea of like, you know, 
going to some political rally, you know, or white supremacist thing in clown suits or, you know, just whatever kind of crazy situation that's playful and open and caring at the same time, which is not so easy to do, or we'd all be doing it, I think. Yeah. Also, the thing I mentioned yesterday in the next chapter where, where um, the Malakirti says only another bodhisattva can harass or hassle a bodhisattva. So to see that there's some way in which uh, all of the uh, people oppressing other people are testing us or helping us to see through this problem. So that's another way to see it. Mm-hmm. Or see our own capacity for oppression. If, there's, if we're not separate, we can see that we have that same capacity someone else does that we think is separate because it's us. Right, right. Yes, and, and you know, what you were talking about before, Hogetsu, is just basically what the Heart Sutra says. Uh, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. There's no, it's not, all of the forms of the world are empty. They're not, it's not separate. It's not dualistic, as Douglas was saying. I mean, Tiger and Douglas, would you say that this sutra is also, I, I always think of it as part of an iteration of the Prajnaparamita sutras, that, of that collection in some ways. I mean, yeah. it's written around the same time and was, you know, kind of riffs on similar themes. Yes, and uh, as I was, as I've been saying, this is Malakirti Sutra is kind of a combination of Prajnaparamita teachings about emptiness and what we've been talking about. And also, it's this inconceivable teaching, which is like the Vimalakirti, the uh, Vatamsaka Sutra. So the Vimalakirti is, uh, you know, all the, all the ma- magical stuff that uh, Vimalakirti does and all these uh, inconceivable, all the inconceivable things that are coming in the Vimalakirti Sutra. Uh, so it's really a combination of Prajnaparamita teaching and flower ornament of a Tamsaka teaching, in my opinion. And lotus. Mm-hmm. It's all there. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I think your question about what would be Malakirti would do about oppressors mm-hmm. or maybe violent people. Yeah. The demonstrations that we run into. It's a challenging question to ask. If we are really yeah. one reality, one life, one body, what is the, the appropriate response? That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, we have to, we would have to step outside of us and them, good and bad, right or wrong, to some more creative response, hopefully. 